The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53, verse 4. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Vanessa. This spring we've been looking at uh, the book of Isaiah, one of the great prophets, the great prophet, um, who prophesies from 700 years before the birth of Christ so much about the birth of Christ. And we're particularly looking at him for those prophecies about Jesus. Because the prophets, and particularly Isaiah, show us that the Bible is a single story. It's not two books, the Old Testament and the New Testament, but rather it is one story over several thousand years with one God and one purpose, and at the very center is Jesus. And Jesus, after he left his disciples, he said to them, while you're waiting for my spirit, I want you to study the Old Testament, I want you to pray, and I want you to discover all that it is in it about me, because it is all about me. And so that's what we're trying to follow. How is the Old Testament about Jesus, and specifically, how does Isaiah speak about the Messiah? Messiah is just the Hebrew word for Christ. Jesus the Christ. We've noticed a change in Isaiah. The first part of it is much about judgment, about the law of God, about the failure of particularly the human kings of Israel to follow God's lead. But then in chapter 4, there's a, a change. And the last chapters are all about God's comfort. First of all, for God's comfort to his people back in the time of Isaiah, but also looking forward to those who will encounter Christ. And so Isaiah works on two levels, and this is the challenge of reading it. God is speaking to the people in the time of Isaiah and telling them about what's going to happen and why, but he's also kind of looking over their heads into the future and talking to people who will encounter Christ, and sketching out a picture of who the coming Christ is, what he will be like. You can think of uh, the prophecies as sort of cliff notes. It starts with broad sketches. He's going to be a divine king. You know, he's going to be born of a virgin. But then they get increasingly detailed. And they give us what God considers the most important things to notice about Jesus. These are the things that he wants to make sure we do not miss 
And so this is kind of a sketch of the core of Jesus' significance. And we're in a section now, uh, in chapters 52 and 53, where the sketch becomes particularly vivid. And he gives us a counterintuitive idea of Jesus. Not as a divine king coming with legions of conquering angels, but rather as a servant. These passages that we're going to look at in the next few weeks are called the suffering servant prophecies because they give us a completely different picture of the character of Jesus and how he's going to show up. So let's have a look at this. And remember, this is God's prophecy. These are the highlights. He wants to make sure we do not miss these elements of Jesus' character. See or behold, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. This is reintroducing the theme we saw back in chapter 42. Not a divine king, but a servant doing God's will. And notice, annotated here is a select biography of the coming Messiah. He will be raised. He'll be resurrected. He'll be lifted up. He will return to heaven he'll have, through his ascension. He will be highly exalted. He will sit at the right hand of God the Father. There is a tendency in academia, and increasingly I've noticed it in other places, to try to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament. The Old Testament is for the Jews. The New Testament is for Christians. Particularly in the academia, um, there is an attempt to think about them separately, as distinct. As Christians, we should always resist that. It's one book. And you see here um, Jesus' biography. What are the most significant things about him? He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. Right here, in this first verse, we should never forget it's all about Jesus. Just as there were many who were pulled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Jesus did not come as some beautiful, glorious king, majestic, robed, loaded with gold and jewels. All his disciples ran away when they saw what happened to Jesus on the cross. And Isaiah here is preparing us for that. Jesus was scourged. That means every inch of his skin was whipped. With whips, with pieces of metal and glass in them. And then he was crucified. He was so appalling that people turned away. Crucifixion was a terrible way to die. This was no way for a divine king to end up. This is no way for the power of God to end up. People were appalled. Jesus' followers and all his disciples abandoned him. And the world could not make sense of him. So he will sprinkle many nations 
and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For, the, for what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That reference there to the arm of the Lord, earlier in Isaiah, Isaiah says, the power of God, his arm will be revealed to the nations through this servant. And yet, in the world's eyes, this is not how power works. The powers of the world, the kings of the world, the tyrants of the world, cannot make sense of a leader, a king, who would let himself suffer who would end up bloodied and crucified, who would show up so weak and vulnerable. He doesn't make sense in the world's eyes. And Isaiah is getting us ready for that fact, getting Israel ready for that fact and reminding us of that fact. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, unlike a root out of dry ground. A tender shoot. What kind of power of God looks like that? Jesus comes as a weak and vulnerable baby. No heavenly armies. No irresistible power. You see, this very idea, the idea that the infinite, omnipotent God would make himself vulnerable, so tender, so at the mercy of human care, a human mother who has to feed and change the diapers, or whatever they had back then. I have no idea, actually. The idea that anyone in power, or who has power, would make themselves so vulnerable. It's a difficult idea for power to understand. And a root out of dry ground, you know, this is meant to be the power of heaven, and yet he's just like a regular human being, an earthly human being. How to make sense of him. Jesus, the Messiah, the power of God's arm, is outrageous to earthly eyes, to human ideas of power and influence and majesty. He doesn't fit the bill. His power doesn't work the way our power works. And notice something else. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus had absolutely no charisma, no beauty, no glamour. You know, if you Google images of Jesus, you have this whole range. Many of them, blonde, blue-eyed, Scandinavian types, kind of an ethereal, kind of glowing skin. And you have a whole series of different ones. Um... You have a, a, a more African version, dark skin, dark eyes with halos and majestic clothes. You have Chinese versions. You have female versions. You have every different kind. One thing that we can be sure of is he looked like absolutely none of them. Because Jesus left no sketch. There was no sketch of Jesus. There's no description of him apart from this passage right here. He didn't look like any of those. But we do know that he was not 
outstanding. There was nothing about him that would have made him stand out to you. If you'd walked into a room back then and Jesus had been in the room, despite what you think that you would have felt his glow and his aura, you would not. He would not have been the beautiful person in the room. He would not have been the cool kid. He would have been indistinguishable. When Jesus was betrayed, he was so ordinary looking that the Romans had to ask uh, Judas to kiss him on the cheek so that they could distinguish him from the other disciples. Clearly, there was nothing about his dress or his appearance. No blue-eyed, blonde-haired God amongst ordinary human beings. He just looked like anybody else. Many times, when Jesus caused a ruckus and people tried to grab hold of him or to um, catch him, he would just walk into the crowd and be indistinguishable and escape. What does this mean? Jesus is not like charismatic human leaders who control people through their charisma, through their beauty, through their oratory, through something about them that just grips people. That is not how he came. He was not one of the beautiful people. He was not a celebrity. He did not have some kind of majesty or aura. And therefore, as Christians, we should be very suspicious of such things. We should be suspicious of glamorous, charismatic spiritual leaders. Because Jesus wasn't one. It was what he revealed through his life, not who he was, that attracted people to him. He didn't wear fancy clothes. He didn't drive around in a Rolls Royce or the equivalent back then, a golden chariot or whatever it would have been. He didn't wear purple clothes. He didn't have the fancy haircut. There was nothing about him that made him stand out. In our time, he would not be a celebrity. He would not be on TV as one of the glamorous people. Jesus comes at the bottom. Jesus' power and strength comes out of the ordinariness and works his way up, not from the top down. And therefore, we should be suspicious of all leaders, all examples of Christianity, all talk of spirituality that comes from the top, that is glamorous, that is fashionable, that is cool, that the in-crowd are part of. Because that's not the kind of Christianity Jesus came to. By the way, if I start dressing up and looking beautiful in your eyes, that's a problem. So It's not going to happen. <laughs> Stay away from the beautiful people. Why? Because charisma can lead us astray. You know, probably the paradigmatic, paradigmatic, the best example. The best example, um, I'm sure you've heard of this, Back in the 60s, Jonestown, there was this charismatic leader. He started off as a church leader, but he turned into a Marxist and a, and a bully. And uh, he and his wife in the 50s were very cruel. They adopted uh, children from every race. They had a big multiracial family. They called the Rainbow Family. 
This was in the 50s, right before civil rights began to become very popular. And so this was like the edgy, cool family. And they started up a compound down in South America, and a thousand American families, a thousand people went down, a thousand Americans with their children, to be part of this new way of living together. Multiracial, everything shared, based on Marxist principles, to await utopia, or to build utopia. But it didn't work out. The land was not very fertile. Uh, Jones uh, became a druggie and became power-crazed. He started uh, harassing people when they tried to lead, leave. In fact, he started killing people, and he killed three journalists who investigated him. And the American government got interested, and they, they were going to go down there and investigate him. And so on one awful night, Jones, through his sheer charisma, persuaded 900 people to commit suicide, just out of the first force of his personality. He said to them, it's better for us to die together down here in the jungle than be taken back to America by the American government. And so notoriously, they mixed, knowingly, they mixed cyanide with a fruit drink. They administered it first to 300 children and then to all the adults. They literally drank the Kool-Aid, and they all died. One charismatic human being could lead 900 people to do that. I think of the mothers giving their children Kool-Aid laced with cyanide. Who could persuade you to do that to your child? And yet these were ordinary Americans, idealistic Americans, trying to build a new and beautiful society. Charisma, glamour, the trappings of power and influence, what is cool, what the celebrities are doing, what is trendy. All these things are anathema to Christianity. When I first went to California in the 80s, I was hitchhiking. And, uh, by the way, all the craziness seems to be California. That's where Jones came from. When I went there, I was picked up by this guy, young uh, man, in a very fancy car. And he was on his way to meet his guru. And I was interested. So he tested me. We stopped um, by a river, and I had to meditate for him for an hour to prove that I was ready to meet his guru. So we drove up into the Malibu Hills, and these narrow roads filled with Rolls Royces and expensive cars all the way up to this magnificent house looking out over the ocean. And it was filled with several hundred people and their Indian guru. And he sat there, and he talked English, but I can understand what he said. It was, it was filled with strange stops and odd emphasis on words. And he laughed all the time. And every time he laughed, everybody laughed. And the, the whole point was the ridiculousness of life. And there was a lot of emotion and hugging and kissing. And it was deeply weird. Very California. Um, and I left. I didn't, I didn't like the look of it. But I met very similar people in San Francisco when I lived there. There was another guru, Bhagwan Shri Rajneesh. I don't know if you heard of him. The Red People. They had a commune in Oregon. And they two, uh, there was up to 2,000 young people. And they gave this guru all their money. And he used to buy Rolls Royces with their money. And he bought 93 Rolls Royces. And every morning he'd drive across the campground in one of his Rolls Royces, waving at them. 
and then sit in silence, and they would gather around him and, and just watch him meditate. And then they would just spend the afternoon giggling, giggling and laughing and having sex with each other out there in the Oregon woods. Now, they would send people down to San Francisco, San Francisco to recruit, and uh, I met several of them, and they were all wonderful, all young, all happy, all smiley, prone to hugging you and telling you how wonderful you are, and they just wanted people to go back to the compound. And I was tempted, you know? It sounds great to have somebody who's going to solve all your problems, create a utopia filled with life and energy. At that age, the idea of unlimited sex sounded very attractive. And there was a real sense, maybe this is what I should do. But thankfully, San Francisco was just so fun that I never left. I often wonder what would have happened to me. Exactly the same thing happened to that group of people as to Jonestown. It wasn't viable. The leaders fell into a pattern of drug abuse and a controlling and abusing other people, trying to make everybody else do the work. And the whole thing exploded. They ended up trying to poison the local community. They tried to put bacteria in the salad bars because they were trying to take over the council. It was very weird. A single charismatic leader destroyed the lives of all these people. And they were glamorous. They would show up in their beautiful red clothes, this kind of dark red all matching, and they just looked cool. Everybody wanted to be like them. Where they were, there was laughter. That's not Christianity. You know, I could go on. There's all kinds of cults. You remember the UFO cult in California in the 90s? 39 people committed suicide waiting for a UFO. One charismatic leader took over their minds, locked them into this community, and it resulted in death. That will never be Christian. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Esteem there is an accounting word. We reckoned him to have no value. By human standards, Jesus Christ was worthless, a loser of no value, no prestige, no beauty, no charisma, no power, no nothing. Right at the bottom. And that's Christianity. Well, how can that be? How can it be that such an awesome God would work that way? Why would he bother if he's going to do things at the bottom, among the powerless, among those who are despised? I think it's a great question. I was never told the answer to that question, by the way, at seminary. I had to come to Hoboken to learn that. When I came to Hoboken uh, to start this church, I had only the vaguest ideas of ministry. And then I met April Harris, which hopefully many of you know. She runs the In Jesus' Name ministry here. She was not impressive when I met her. Bad teeth, overweight, a shockingly unflattering gray flannel skirt she used to wear with a broken zipper, an absolute scandal, and a homeless person's jacket. If you looked at her, 
you would think, what on earth is going on with her? Nothing good. And what she taught me was her life and her ministry, and in Jesus' name, was defined by a story that Jesus tells in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 25. I'm going to read it to you, because I think it's probably one of the most beautiful and yet terrifying stories that Jesus told. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he's talking about the second time he'll come. The first time he comes humble, a suffering servant. The next time he shows up, he's going to be that divine king with those legions of angels. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. This is Judgment Day. Then the king will say, remember, Jesus is this promised divine king. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, <clears throat> when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger invite you in, or needing clothes and clothes you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You see what he's saying? And this was April's point, and is the point of her life. Jesus is not just like poor people or sick people, people who need to be clothed, hungry people. He's not just like them. He preferentially has bonded with them. The Messiah doesn't come to mix it up with rich, glamorous celebrity people. He comes to the very bottom and bonds with them so much that when you encounter such people, you are encountering him, because that's where he is. That's what he became. That's how he shows up. If you want to find Jesus, if you want to meet him, if you want to serve him, that's where you have to go. It's the whole point of uh, April Harris's ministry. There's a warning, by the way. Then he will say to those on his left, these are the goats, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. 
I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did you see, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help? And he will reply, Surely I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. That's the difference between real Christianity and glamorous Christianity, between people who say they're Christians because it's a comfortable thing or for whatever reason, and those who are Christians because they take Jesus at his word and they go to those dark places, those lowly places, those poor people, those hungry people, and they serve them. More than that, that is where you find Jesus. Not in some rich, elaborate cathedral. Not amongst flashy, cool people. You find Jesus among the poorest of them all. I was invited on uh, a relief uh, bus trip early on in my, my career here, and we went up to Brooklyn. And the idea was to, to go up uh, onto the streets. It was uh, right before Christmas. It was cold and miserable as can be, gray and dirty up there. And the idea was to, to hand out clothes, to hand out gloves, to uh, give some hot food and hot things to drink, and offer ourselves for prayer. You know, any problems that people had. And it was amazing. You know, we had some hymns going. The lights created this little bubble, this glowing bubble, in the midst of this gray city. And people came and filled, I mean, they just formed lines. It was amazing how many people came. What struck me about that encounter was one particular woman. Her name was Carol. She came right at the end. And, you know, I was standing there asking people, what could I pray for them? You know, what's going on in your life that I can pray for? And she came up with a smile in her eyes, and she said, what can I pray for you? Which is a complete surprise. She uh, was at a Christian women's shelter. She was 55 years old. And she'd been on the streets her whole life since the age of 15. And she'd been a drug addict her whole life. This was the first time, 55 years old, that she'd been free of drugs for a significant period of time. And she was thrilled. What had changed? Jesus. She said the biggest problem for her was forgiveness. On the streets, she had had to do some terrible things to survive, things that filled her with shame and self-loathing. And every time she got off drugs, she would remember those things, and it would drive her back to the oblivion of drugs. That was the biggest problem all those years. All the programs she tried didn't work until she encountered Jesus at this Christian woman's home. And the experience, the power, the knowledge that Jesus forgave her set her free because she wasn't defined by her past anymore. She wasn't defined by the worst things that she'd done in her life. She had a new life. And she said, you know, her one regret was that she'd come to this so late, 55 years old. She had no possessions, no family, no home, no job. She had nothing. And yet, 
there was a sparkle in her eyes, and she was filled with hope, and she prayed for me. She asked me what I needed, rather than asking me to pray for what she needed. And I thought about her. How many of us waste this life by missing the single most important thing? Jesus. Whatever else you can say about Carol, she knew exactly what was important in this world, and she found him. And the power of Christ changed her life. Now, I have no idea what she did going forward, but it is the power that can forgive and change a life like Carol's that is divine power. That's how people are changed from the bottom up. Nothing imposed, nothing forced, nobody told what to do, but a changed heart that is never going to be the same again. That's why Jesus was from the bottom up. And that's why, if you want to meet him, that's where you've got to go. Where there are poor people, where there are sick people, where there are prisoners, where there are people who need clothes. Ministry is the place that we meet Jesus. Looking to the needs of others is where he is going to show up. It's not going to be glamorous, but when you meet him, you will know him, and you will recognize him, and you will be changed. That's the Messiah that Isaiah is pointing us to. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in Jesus you come vulnerable, approachable, touchable. Lord, if you came any other way, we would be terrified. We would not be able to draw near. Give us now the courage to seek you, to find you, to serve you, to meet you in the needs of others. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are our king, that you are our servant king. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,